0: I like the old school journalism of it, too, how it was – how they actually had to, to thumb through the, the physical handbooks of, you know, the – you know, let's say that the church kept a record of where each priest was assigned and why with sick leave and all that. Mm-hmm. It was almost like they had to pound the pavement and and do some some actual gumshoe detective work as opposed to, you know, just nowadays I guess you just type it in Google or whatever, and there's even that funny shot where they show you know the, the AOL sign but yeah there's a there's never a movie I've seen before where where nine eleven of all things comes up, and you're like, "No, get back to the story yeah. they show that clip and you're and you realize that that that's why this got this story got buried for so long.
1: Welcome to It's All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about the changing state of digital news and the people who are making digital news as part of their jobs. And in studio today with me is a friend from upstairs from WTOP, our sister station here in Washington, D.C., Jason Fraley. Welcome, Jason.
0: Thanks. And when they say the man upstairs, they're not talking about me, but I guess in this case, I'm upstairs.
1: No. Yes, you are. are. You're the the man upstairs. Jason was in here a long time ago on our podcast when he was the movie critic and morning reporter at that time we were kind of i think we were talking about movies that had to do with the media and just sort of in general terms about uh, being a radio reporter and a movie reporter or a movie critic and since then last we last spoke you've had a promotion and now you're WTOP's entertainment editor which means you have a lot more responsibilities so how has your job changed it's changed drastically
0: So yeah, started out as the morning uh, drive writer. So it was more or less just taking newspaper stories at you know at the crack of dawn at 4 a.m. And, and cranking those out for for Mike and Bruce. Now Mike and Joan on for the morning you know drive show, and then parlayed that into one day a week as the movie critic. Um, our Joe Barber passed away. Our old movie critic. He passed away right at, around the same time I was. Graduating with the masters uh, from film school over at AU, and just kind of slid in there. And it was sad to lose Joe, but it you know you never know how the opportunity is going to come. And so that's how that started. Did that for probably three years, just doing the movie reviews on on Fridays. And then uh, yeah, for about a year and a half now, full time entertainment editor. It's crazy. So now now in addition to just movies, now we're covering. You know, theater shows at the Kennedy Center and and Ford's Theater and you know National Theater, Warner Theater, and then then also you have to cover concerts. So you got Wolf Trap and 9:30 Club and everything else, and uh, television. Literally every the whole gamut of entertainment. is. So,
1: it, it, you, how do you approach that? I mean, obviously, it, as a movie critic, that was kind of your your love is you you yeah. love to, to to write about movies. But now, Still is. <laughs> and, and, and but now you sort of had to expand your scope to cover lots of different type of entertainment that you that you may not be familiar with.
0: Yeah, it was um when when we first started it, it was uh. It was sort of daunting to look at the the Google, keep a Google calendar um, and to think, you know, you you do have a great interview with some celebrity or something. You'd spend the day on it and you post it and you'd be like, uh, you want to sit back and be like, oh, that was pretty good. And then you look and you saw there's 25 more days you need, <laughs> you know, on the calendar. So you were, it was daunting to feel like, how how am I gonna fill all that? But now, you know, after a year, about a year and a half of doing it, it's almost the opposite problem. Now it's, you know, figuring out which press releases to say no to. And, you know, it's it's now it seems like they come they come to us now. But, I mean, there's there's really no shortage of, of stuff going on in the town. I mean, it's, I, I feel like D.C. almost, I think it's almost underrated as an entertainment town. I mean, most people think of, you know, you got Broadway in New York and you got, and obviously all the late night stuff in New York and obviously Hollywood with, with movies and TV. But DC, there, there's always. I feel like it's. I, I'd like to say it's like the 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 hidden gem, the secret weapon, because there's always some kind of national award going on every December. There's the Kennedy Center Honors, so we've gotten to talk to George Lucas and Rita Moreno and and Carol King and Tom Hanks, and it's it just goes on and on. And then or Spielberg and Ken Burns will get honored at the National Archives or. Barry Gordy will come to National Theater to show Motown the Musical. It feels like there's all there's the national identity of DC being a national hub of of culture, brings a lot of cool people through here, so yeah. we never
1: really run out of ideas. Yeah, and Breaking Bad uh, dropped yeah. off all of their props and right. costumes at uh, the Smithsonian. Yeah.
0: And Mad Men did the same thing. So Don Draper came and brought you know all the all the stuff from that, and then. Uh, Vince Gilligan and and um, and Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul came to drop off the Breaking Bad stuff, and we even got we got Aaron Paul. I was sort of one man banding it that day with a with a microphone in one hand and a, <laughs> a video camera on the shoulder, but we got Aaron Paul uh, to do his whole "Yo Blank," you know, the expletive from his famous expletive from Breaking Bad, and he uh, he palmed our our camera and gave us a, a "Yo Blank," um, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, there's shows and and film and plays and and pre-Broadway runs that you know Steve Martin does it, or um or let's see Vanessa Hudgens did Gigi before they brought it to Broadway. It's there's always something going there,
1: on. Here. There's always something, so it's not like you're you're at a shortage that you you're always gonna be able to find something to to put on the air. Well, how often do you file?
0: Uh, once a day, yeah. Technically, I'm sit over on the web desk, but you know I file on air pieces every day too. So I've I've tried to make it more of a crossover thing than I guess maybe previous. But but yeah, no, so I guess my main duty is to to edit and manage the entertainment page every day on WTOP.com. So that's writing a cover story on there. I'll do the cover story every day. The big image at the top is is, is usually my, my almost, I'd say pretty much 99.9% of the time is, is my story for the day. Sort of a, a feature piece on a play or movie or show or concert in town or a celebrity interview that that stopped by.
1: And we've got some really, really cool people. Yeah, no, yeah. You uh, recently, I'm a little jealous. You interviewed uh, Malcolm McDowell. Oh
0: yeah, Clockwork Orange. Talk, yeah, talk yeah, Clockwork Orange with him. So, so perfect example, where he's in that show Mozart in the Jungle, um, on Amazon Prime. So it was nominated for the Globes, and so he was doing a little radio tour for that. But in doing that, then I, you know, then I get to gig out and talk about a Clockwork Orange. You know, so there's there's ways to you know promote what what they're doing and then and touch on something else and so,
1: sort of feed that that movie geek in you and speaking yes. of movies we we're, we're in awards the middle of awards season and actually Oscars are coming up and yeah. I, I guess you just told me before we started you're going to actually get to go out and cover the Oscars Yeah
0: pretty pretty breaking news actually they um the the folks here and and the and the national CBS as well up in New York sort of worked it out where we could get me credentialed to go there we, you had to pick either either doing the red carpet out front which is you know more of the e and the fashion and all that. Or what I chose, which was to go backstage, plug in the malt box, cover the actual awards, and be there in the, in the sort of the press room after after they win the Oscars and come back. So so when Leo grabs his Oscar, well, you know, we'll be the first to talk to him back there, along with the rest of the press corps. And or you know, and I kind of sat up in bed realizing, you know, all these years I've been a Rocky fan, it just happens I'll be out there. Maybe maybe Stallone will come through. You know, so we'll, you never
1: know. We'll see. So have you have you made any plans yet as to how you're going to approach this?
0: I'm still trying to book the flights and find somewhere you know to crash with friends out there and all that stuff. But um, no, it's just going to be a whirlwind and see see how it goes. It's the first time out there. We'll be backstage. I'm going to wear a tux and we'll see what happens. <laughs> and you're going to
1: file reports for the the radio the next day and and hopefully get some features out of it as well.
0: Yeah, usually we live tweet it. You know, I'll just sit on my couch and live tweet it and then come in to the station and sort of pull an overnighter and file on air pieces for the morning because, you know, having Work that morning drive show as the writer. I, I like to throw those guys the bones. I know, I know the the importance of having it on the air first thing the next morning. You know, so I uh, usually if it's a big award show, I'll, I'll live tweet it at night and then come in here and file something for the morning. But for that, yeah, for that it'll be a three hour time difference. But you know, probably file some pieces based off of. You know what we get from the malt box, and uh, maybe do some live shots.
1: So um, you, you talk about live tweeting. Now, have you have you live tweeted? I've seen that you've live tweeted some entertainment events. Have you been doing uh, the award shows up to this point? Yeah,
0: I think it's it's something. I think we started probably two years ago or something with with the Oscars, and I think we've, and and with the Globes, which those are. Sort of, I haven't really done it with the Grammys yet, but you know the things that are more my area of expertise, which is movies and TV and stuff. Yeah, we've done some live tweeting, so we'll set up like a live blog through this service called Scribble Live, and uh, we'll post it on the, on the web on WTOP.com, and uh, I'll just fire off tweets on who wins, and our editor Judy Taub and I will play Name That Tune with a little orchestra music, <laughs> the intro and exit music uh, for the broadcast, and I don't know, we just have fun with it. But okay. uh, But yeah, now we'll be doing live shots from out there for the first time, so we'll see how it goes.
1: I do want to talk with you about the movies this year, the nominees, and what you think have been the best movies of 2015. But before we get to that, I think we should probably talk a little bit about the big, quote-unquote, controversy that's going on in the Oscars. And, you know, what are your thoughts about it? On
0: the one hand, winning an Oscar is supposed to be hard, you know? so it it should always be you know the the cream of the crop but there there is an actual problem there when you know if you if you look at the you know who makes up who votes for these these awards i mean the academy is what is it it's 94% white it's 70 some percent male it's i think 60s percent over the age of 50 or something like that so we're really talking about older white guys uh, voting for this so I, I think that, that it should at least be um, – the people that vote for these things should, should at least be somewhat representative of, of the general population. You know, whatever the percentages are of, out there in the, in the real world, it should be similar to the actual people that vote. But to me also, I think um, the bigger problem, I think, is giving access to you know people of color to to even make movies, more movies in the first place. You know, mm-hmm. more black directors, more Latino directors, more female directors. Because, you know, I think, I think the, the, what, what's being fed in, into, the, into the awards season, into the uh, festival circuit to be even voted on in the end, um, is sort of a narrow representation anyway. I think that's almost a larger problem than, it, than, I don't think anyone's really maliciously voting, you know, one way or another, but I think it's more of a representation uh, sort of at that quote-unquote grassroots of what's allowed to be made.
1: You know, I watch more television than I than I go out and see movies and, and watch movies online. And, you know, I see that there are a lot of shows that are actually making an effort, certainly in the in the, in their casting, that they have a more multiracial uh, representative cast. Um, you know, do you, do you see that that's, you know, sort of a step in the direction to, to sort of change – you know, maybe the the behind the scenes as well in Hollywood.
0: Yeah, I think so. And and whenever let's so what's you throw um what's a good a recent example? So grease a grease live was just on. I don't know. That's the first thing that popped in my head. There was you know you know some people of color populated in there. So you know whenever it works. I mean I don't think you should be, ever be you know forced and seem like we're doing oh here's our token casting. You know when it works it works. So yeah, but I I think that's exactly what you got to do is is you know have have diverse casts. But also the people making the movies, too. And there's there's definitely a problem in the Oscars when, you know, to me, I thought the egregious... Thing, I mean, yeah, you could say, you know, Compton this year, maybe Ryan Coogler for... um Creed, maybe as a director, those single takes were great. But to me, the bigger egregious snub was Selma last year. With with uh, I know I know it was nominated for Best Picture, but I thought Ava DuVernay should have been di- nominated for Director, and even David Oyelowo played King Masterfully, and he didn't get nominated either. So and then and then you have have sort of this running his. I'm a big movie history guy, but you have this running thing. Of you know when when people of color are nominated, a lot of times it's it's for these stereotypical roles like they're right. playing. You know, it's a it's a slave T-tay movie. Ten years
1: or, of the uh, slave. Yeah, yeah,
0: twelve years of slave, or, or you know, years, or The Help, or you know things like that. Or on the other hand, or, or it's like a, a a a gangster like you know a, the big. There was this quote in in this Jadakiss song is why did Denzel have to get crooked before he took it? You know, uh, when he won for Training Day. So there, there's that whole skepticism too, and obviously, as a white guy, I can only speak to it so much. And some of it, it's it's not my place, but I'm dropping my two cents. But yeah, I mean, in addition to that, I mean, bringing up the Denzel thing, in addition to a di- diversity problem, Oscars just in general have sort of a makeup award problem, you know. Like, so everyone thought, Why well, Denzel won it? Why do you have to? Why would he have to go crooked before he took it in Training Day? Well, because when the year he probably should have won it for his more, you know, serious role, Malcolm X. He lost to Al Pacino for *Son of a Woman* as a makeup award because Al Pacino never won it back. Let's say *The Godfather* because they had to give it to Brando, who you know probably should have won for *Streetcar*, but lost to um, uh, Bogart for *African Queen* that year. You know, you know what I mean? Who probably should have won for Blank. So you know, it, it's sort of the series of domino effects of of makeup awards in the, in an Oscars that. I'd say if you look back in hindsight, probably gets it right like half the time anyway. <laughs> you yeah. know, there's usually movies ahead of their time.
1: Yeah, but c- certainly, you know, you you win an Oscar, you're gonna get, you know, the re-release of film or, or just you know distributed on digital or in DVD. That it's gonna get a larger audience. It's gonna give it a, a degree of cred, you know, in the history of a film. Well, um, and in
0: and the immediacy of it too. I yeah. mean, you can plaster the Academy Award winner on your on the DVD cover or whatever. So it does, and you know. And it helps those actors, people of color, directors of color, to then get more roles. So it's not—I guess it's not totally insignificant. It's definitely not insignificant. It can help them in a real way, you know. Yeah,
1: but so let's let's move on and, and talk about the Oscars themselves, the the movies that are out there or the films that were out there. Was was 2015 a good year for movies? You think? I feel
0: like there's been some stronger years, you know, more recently. But yeah, I mean. When you there's I've always been the mindset that usually probably if you boil it down, there's probably a handful of handful to ten like great movies every year. And I thought there are really some really, really strong ones this year. My favorite of the year was was Spotlight, um, which I guess ties into when we first came on here and we were <laughs> talking about newspaper movies, but I really thought it was sort of like the, all the present men of our time. I thought it was Really well cast. The pacing of it I thought was great. And, you know, maybe, you know, I talked to David Chase, the creator of the... I mean, David Simon, the creator of The Wire, he he held a Q&A at this film fest. What was it? The Investigative Film Fest is where I saw Spotlight. Um, and I guess just hearing him talk to the real-life reporters on stage and and, and 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 then seeing the cast and everything, like, maybe that swung it in my direction. That, that, that's why it was my favorite of the year. I also really liked... um I liked Room a lot. I thought Brie Larson just killed it. I remember, you know, when I first saw it back in the fall, I said, "Give her the Oscar now." And I'm glad to see that it's sort of shaking out that way because I saw her in Short Short Term Twelve uh, a couple years ago. Great, you ever see that?
1: No, oh, I it's haven't. a great
0: movie. Check it out. It was like a South by Southwest darling, like in 2013 or 12. But yeah, I love those and the one. But the one that didn't really get um, much attention that I really liked was the Beach Boys biopic, Love and Mercy. I really, I, just, I hey, really like
1: that one. Yeah, I just watched that last weekend, and and my wife and I really loved it. It was, uh, it was really um, surprisingly emotional and and very you know just wonderfully interesting. Uh, you know, finding out more about uh, about Brian Wilson and, and and the problems he had and that story, the very human story,
0: and a timely topic of of mental illness. And I just thought. I yeah. just thought it was really daringly directed how they they took the idea. Everyone knows Good Vibrations, but take the idea that he's he was literally picking up good vibrations, and they showed his all these audio hallucinations he was having, or the clanking of silverware like really affected him, or you know, and the camera dives in his ear almost like like in Blue Velvet. David Lynch did the same thing with the ear, but yeah, no, I, I just thought it was it was like a real really gutsy, timely, daring filmmaking, and then not to mention the you know. Sort of Godfather Two style with the parallel, you know, two well, parallel tales.
1: Well, yeah, and, yeah, that that I liked a lot. I liked I liked the scene in the bedroom, which was reminiscent of two thousand and one. Where he sees himself, where he sees himself yeah. And, yeah. at different stages in his life, yeah. and uh, the flash. I thought it was a really great way to to tell the story, and because it was sort of divided up in those parallel. Um, storylines just a well-constructed movie it was yeah. and, and very very human in the end but you know going back to talk about a couple of the ones that you, you mentioned room we're both members of um, the Screen Actors Guild because we and because we SAG after because we work for a radio station and so one of the benefits we get is at the end of the year they send us all of the the pictures and we get to vote for the SAG awards so we get you know we get a bunch of really good movies to look at the, at the end of the year and the beginning of the uh, of the new year, and Room was one of those movies that kind of knew what it was about, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, a woman and her child abducted, and I was kind of like, I really don't want to watch this movie because everybody says it's very emotional. And I'm thinking, oh, it's probably really brutal and stuffing. Right. but it's one of the most uplifting movies I've ever seen, and the performances in it were pretty incredible.
0: And the kid, the Jacob Tremblay, yeah. yeah,
1: both her and and the the uh, the, uh, the boy who played her kid mm-hmm. were just just amazing. And then um what was the other movie? Well, oh, I, what I
0: on. before we leave room, what I really liked about it too, not only is you know the powerful mother-son relationship and the great performances and everything, I loved it. It was almost like this profound existential statement. Have you ever heard of like Plato's Shadows on the Wall? Yeah. You know, the idea, yeah. you know, that maybe, you know, that all we're seeing is are these maybe shadow pebbles on a wall? But then if if you're released from this cave, I think in his analogy, and then you see the world, you're like, whoa! All this is. I guess. I, I related to it in that way in terms of like I just thought it was pretty brilliant that these small walls were were his ends of the earth, and the, the skylight was his sky. But the the trees and the nature and the oceans must be fake because he's the only, only sees them on TV. And yeah, I just thought it was like very deep on that level too. And I then you spend the second half with him out. You know, the William H Macy. Your dad won't even look at the kid. You know, it starts this whole new. You know, it's almost you could divide the movie in half as sort of this thriller in the room, and then and then the consequences after. Oh, that was great.
1: Yeah, and I didn't even draw the parallels to Plato, but you're you're absolutely right. The whole it, that's the whole the the ph- philosophical right. rationale behind it is is the, your perception. You know, the the limited perception the boy has in the in the world that he was trapped as in. There's a and scene
0: then, they do shadow puppets too.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's intentional. It's I'm sure they're much smarter people than us. who are making these movies. And then Spotlight. You know, I too. You know, I think I was surprised how much I like Spotlight. Spotlight is a. You know, it's it's a it's a media movie. It's sort of reminiscent of all the President's Men, but it's also. It's an issue movie. It's about it's about about child abuse and and, and sort of the role of the Catholic Church, and, all the Boston, men. yeah, all yeah. the postmen. It was it, there were a lot of things going on, but it was it was the way it was told in the many different levels, it was told and, and it was very straightforward. It wasn't preachy. What I liked, and I've had and I've had several people here in the newsroom mention it, the reporters, were recognizable as people that i've worked with i mean i, I didn't actually work at that place right. but like the ruffalo character i've worked with reporters who who are exactly like that that's the right. way they talk that's the way they uh, they interact with people and the way they they get excited about stories and they pursue stories to the end so for me you know as, a, as somebody who's been in a newsroom for you know 20 years it, that that movie seemed really authentic and, and hopefully yeah. that a lot of people were able to sort of connect to
0: that i like the old school journalism of it too how it was how they actually had to to thumb through the the physical handbooks of you know the you know let's say that the church kept a record of where each priest was assigned and why with sick leave and all that. Mm-hmm. It was almost like they had to pound the pavement and and do some some actual gumshoe detective work as opposed to you know just nowadays I guess you just type it in Google or whatever. And there's even that funny shot where they show you know the, the AOL sign. But yeah, there's a there's never a movie I've seen before where where 9/11 of all things comes up and you're like, no, get back to the story because yeah. they show that clip and you're and you realize that that that's why this got, this story got buried for so long because yeah. you know right as they were getting ready to publish this priest abuse thing, you know it was it, yeah that happens. So. And,
1: and for a and for a podcast that's about journalism, it's not it's really heartening to see a movie that kind of gets what journalism can do. Mm-hmm. That sort of tells that story of, look, you know, if you put the time and the effort in and you really put the time and the effort in and realize that there's a lot of information out there that you can you can uncover that could have a huge impact on a community, I mean. From that perspective, it, it it was a great movie. In, in sort of passing, you you jokingly said that you're expecting uh, a certain actor to win a, oh. <laughs> a certain award for a certain movie that had a bear in it. I seem to remember, uh, Revenant. Uh, so yeah, the bear scene, the bear. So what is it that apparently had nothing to do with him having love with the the bear? No, uh, having seen all the movies. Yes, yeah, so it's yeah. more of just a straight attack. Yeah. No, no, it's. Um, so what did you think of that movie?
0: My take on the Revenant is, I. I'm totally cool if Leo gets it, you know, as a grueling performance. I'm totally cool if, if you know, Emmanuel Lubeski, who shot Birdman and Gravity, yeah. Allen, if he gets it for
1: cinematography because it's freaking gorgeous. It's, he's, he's um, one of the most, oh, you know, he's, he's yeah. up there with, um, he might win oh, three in a row. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. I'm sorry.
0: Oh, no. Yeah. No. And uh, obviously, I was a huge Birdman fan. I know it was kind of a polarizing movie because it was bizarre, but I freaking loved the, the whole single take thing. And so, I'm a I'm a fan of Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu. And, and speaking of the diversity, we've had you know, yeah. we we a lot of times we we forget that you know people of color also includes you know Latinos and uh, you know Alfonso Cuaron and um, Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu are doing have been picking up some awards. So that's progress. But yeah, anyway, so but back to your question. Yeah, so I'm cool if they get its director, cinematography, actor, but in terms of an overall movie, I I've sort of I've sort of been not pleased that it's been sweeping all, you know, the the um the the awards. I remember I think it won best picture at the Globes for best drama and and uh one at the DGAs, but yeah, I don't know. In, in terms of an overall movie, I didn't I think I, it's a director's movie, definitely. I think it's more of a director's movie. There's a lot of it's almost Terrence Malicki in some no, of the, the all- beauty shots of the trees. That and was it, yeah.
1: the that was the the, the name I was trying, I was searching for Terrence Malick. It's it's very much that it's yeah. a gorgeous film. The, the opening sequence, the the battle with the Native Americans, was incredible. Yeah, because I've never seen a battle shot like that where you're actually. In the middle of it, and you, you have a real sense of being in the middle, as, as, as things are flying around you and you're, the camera's moving around and jumps from person yeah. to person and movement and, and, and yeah. sort of recreating that sort of confusion. I mean, it's just...
0: Yeah, if you guys haven't seen it, A, I think it's probably the best opening battle sequence in Saving Private Ryan, but imagine, if you haven't seen it, imagine sort of this Braveheart-style hand-to-hand combat, except... You're gonna. It's gonna be like 360
1: the cam- degrees. Yeah, yeah, the
0: camera's not gonna stop running. So let's say you're following me as I'm going to attack Michael O'Connell here, except he stabs me. So, but then the and and kills me. The camera's gonna stay with Mike now as he runs across the street yeah. and gets whacked by the guy over at Giant out the window. But then the camera's gonna stay with him and you know what I mean. Like it goes yeah. from one person to the next and as as they each kill each other and the camera just keeps rolling and and gets up on horseback and fi- it, it if, blew me away. It's
1: kind of a Kubrick tracking shot from uh, *Paths of Glory* and <laughs> and uh, *Saving* and um, *Full Metal Jacket*, except in three dimensions. Yeah, it's it was it was wild. It really was. I thought so. I thought it opened really strong. Even the whole like
0: first hour of setup with you know he and you know. You know, sun like dying <laughs> and getting buried. Like, I was cool with that. Um and I thought it finished really strong, you know, how they and they put the guy up on the horseback to to fake out Tom Hardy and then yeah, the final yeah. battle. Like I thought the last thirty minutes was riveting too, but there was it's a two and a half hour movie and there's some part in there like two thirds of the way through that I don't know. I thought they could have trimmed it a little bit. It yeah, got you a bit of a get, slog. That's a, little bit. a good
1: the point to go to get popcorn. <laughs> well, but as long as but, but make sure you stay around for the the bear attack because that that like the opening sequence is pretty incredible yeah, as that's, well.
0: That's early on in. Yeah, it's and it's early. it's a
1: cold movie. It's one of those yeah. movies that actually makes you feel like you're immersed in yeah. nature, yeah. Through, throughout it. You're constantly yeah. slug, slogging through through snow. But so, I think
0: Leo finally get, finally gets it. He, which ironically. You know, you you thought it would be for a Scorsese movie because he became sort of Scorsese's new De Niro lately, right? And in all the Aviator and Wolf of Wall Street. I liked him a lot in Wolf of, of
1: Wall Street. I thought he, he he probably should have won it for that. Yeah. But um, so you're saying Spotlight? You you hope for Spotlight? I hope
0: it's Spotlight. It could for, it could be Revenant. for the for the movie, and
1: then and then.
0: Um, but I'm I'm picking Spotlight. <laughs> so
1: so what about what about actress?
0: I think it's Brie Larson. We talked about Room. I th- I think she gets it for that because. Man, I'm just telling you. I just it's check a, out Short Term 12. It's a great movie. Okay. But She's sort of been rising in the ranks. She was in Spectacular now, and then she, she's done some more mainstream stuff. Like she was Amy Schumer's sister in Trainwreck this year. I think she was in yeah. 21 Jump Street. So like, I don't know. She, she's sort of, her star has been rising out there for a while. And then when she made Room, I just it's the type of performance I think the Academy really, really enjoys. But I also, I also think it's really deserving. I like Saoirse Ronan. I, th- I don't think I said that right. In Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and sort of this yeah classic old fashioned love story too. But I think it's Bree Larson. Supporting categories. I know Kate Winslet's picked up a couple for Steve Jobs. I know she's fine. I I'd much rather see I'd rather see Alicia Vikander get it. She's nominated for the Danish Girl. I actually you know, the Eddie Redmayne movie. Mm-hmm. She's a great performance in that, but I actually think she was nominated for the wrong movie. I I I would rather her instead of Danish Girl, I'd rather her be nominated for supporting actress for Ex Machina. She played the AI yeah, robot. Right. I thought she was great she in, was Ex in that. She was good in that. So if I had my druthers, I'd I'd swap those and have her win for that. And then who's supporting actor? Oh, um, no,
1: no. This is this is where we this is where. We oh, it's phones. Stallone.
0: Oh, it, yeah. Everyone's uh, he's he has sort of the the underdog uh, rise there. You know, he wrote he wrote a best picture winner in in Rocky in 1976. So he, they brought him up they brought him up on stage to. As the producers, I guess it was Erwin Winkler and Robert Chardoff, one of which just passed away. But So he got to go up on stage, but he himself has never won. So I think he's sort of riding the underdog uh, wave of trying to win it. Who's he up against? Let's see. Ruffalo Spotlight you mentioned. Tom Hardy Revenant mentioned. Christian Bale, Big Short. I thought Big Short was fine. I, I, it didn't really blow me away. I was hoping it would be better. I think I like yeah. Money, Moneyball better. Of I
1: like yeah, I did. I, I liked the movie. I wasn't totally blown away with uh, by it. A lot of people were talking about the, the performances, which were fine. Some of them I thought were a little too charactery. Yeah. Um. St- uh, Steve Carell, in particular, I thought was a little too charactery. Yeah. Uh. But but it was, it was certainly not as character as as his nomination um, last <laughs> yeah, year. I thought that sketchery. that movie was a little a little strange. Um,
0: My favorite of his is still 40 year old version. I mean, <laughs> comedies <laughs> never get their due. I'm telling no, you, they never do. No. You know, Chaplin and Buster Keaton, everybody gets honored in hindsight with lifetime achievements. But... So so do you have any thoughts on uh, Animated? Oh, I think it's Inside Out. One of my other, f- I think to yeah. me, to me, if, if you have one lock and if you want to prepare a tweet during your live tweet, get that one ready. <laughs> to me, I think, I mean, I thought Inside Out, I think I put it in my top five of the year. I think it was my number five. I thought it was great. I thought it was really genius how they, they showed yeah. all the emotions in your head. Pixar does it again. So I thought it was one of their better ones, maybe right up there with what do you think, Wally? Yeah. Obviously, Toy Story is the best. I think all three Toy Stories. Yeah, Finding it, it, Nemo. It had
1: a lot. It was it was clever. It was funny. It had a lot of uh, humanity in it, which is which. Uh, how the hell they can do that? But they always seem to. They they get that emotion mm. and they just milk it.
0: Man, and milk my tears. But I yeah. I started tearing up when Bing Bong the imaginary friend dies. I I, I know I know. It, Nothing. Nothing that he was like super. Cu- it wasn't yeah. because he was super cute, but because I remembered my imaginary friend. You know I mean? Everybody has stuff like that. So, no, it, it, they always have something for the kids and something for the adults. And-
1: you and I talk a lot when we do. We do see each other. <laughs> we talk about. We movies. talk movies in the kitchen. We talk movies in the kitchen at, at Top, and you know, we we have these sort of ongoing conversations about you know about Hitchcock. Which, yeah, because I know that Vertigo is one of your favorite Love films. Love
0: it. it. Might be my favorite. Yeah.
1: Might be your favorite. I, I was, uh, let's talk a little bit about Vertigo, uh, <laughs> a, a movie that's, that's decades, decades old. I I remember seeing Vertigo when it was on TV when I was a child, and then I didn't see it for a very long time. The only thing I remember from it was um, James Stewart falling, or, well, the right. not falling, but the, the sky, or the his perception of vertigo the, shot. Yeah. The vertigo shot. I remember that, but I remember it. Then like in the eighties it came and it was released again. My wife and I went to go see it. Thing everybody's like, oh it's a great you know Hitchcock movie. And I saw it and I came away with it very kind of well it's not really that good. I mean it, it doesn't Around seem the mind story mind. doesn't seem to hold up. It's it's you know it's it's a mystery, but it's not a mystery. You know, <laughs> it just seems so out of place. And so I mentioned that to you a couple of years ago and because you, you had just, I had a freak out. No. You, know, you were just talking about, you know, you just written something about Vertigo. And I was like, I don't understand Vertigo. I don't get it. I, it just didn't. So so you encouraged me to go back and watch it again. And then I watched it again. And I began to see that there was a lot in that movie that was not apparent. It was actually, in many ways, very subversive uh, for Hitchcock in mm-hmm. that it was – it, it probably yeah, it probably is his best movie because mm-hmm. it's – there's so much mastery going on that if you view it just as his typical thriller, you're going to be really disappointed because it's not. It's not North by What Northwest. Right. There's it's 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 that's it's, that's his most
0: fun. That's his most purely entertaining. Yeah, North by North.
1: But Vertigo is a movie which, you know the more t- the more times you watch it, the more you begin to to understand that it's really about the psychological state of the main character, and the main character's psychological state is not good. Yeah, yeah it's it's sort of I, I guess in literature they call it the was it the unreliable narrator? Right. That he's completely unreliable in the perceptions he has and the outcome is sort of the the result of that. And so that's why when you view it, if you view him just as a, as a, t- a typical Hollywood hero, it's incredibly disappointing because nothing really heroic happens Right. and it sort of ends in despair.
0: Well, and sort of the whole last, just from a pure narrative standpoint, I and mean, we can talk directing in a little bit, but from a pure narrative standpoint, it sort of switches which is whose side we're on you know as yeah. soon as as soon as kim novak writes that letter and tears it up the camera stays with us and we and we realize she's she's judy and madeline you know when, when that whole reveal happens i'd say for the last third of the movie we're sort of on her side seeing yeah. things through her eyes and yeah you're like you say he, jimmy stewart is not a typical hero in fact he's he's very unlikable down the stretch he's you know, he's remaking her into this ideal object, and it's, and it's sort of so tragic that she likes him too, but and goes along she with wants it. To, but, she
1: wants to please yeah. him, right. but which you know, in a larger sense, you talk about Hitchcock and his, you know, the blonde, the blonde yeah. goddess, uh, right. his his main actresses, and what he tried to do—male gaze and all that.
0: Yeah. But yes, no, but but so that's like why, where it's sort of breaking boundaries narratively, script-wise, and everything, but. You know, and and similar to how you know, we, and we take Norman Bates's side too. You know how yeah. we, we switch, we're following that. But to me, what what always really jumped out to me uh, for Vertigo was was the, the the directing and the the fancy term mise en scène of you know <laughs> symbolic things in the, in the background French term. But like you're saying, it's the first time you're watching, it's sort of you got to go with the story. But when you watch it repeat times over and over again, which I happen to do with movies like, especially movies like this about an obsession. <laughs> You find so many cool directorial things in the background, and so like first time you watch it, Jimmy Stewart's driving around town and, and following her. It's almost like a thirty minute silent sequence. It's like, oh, come on, yeah, yeah, right. You watch it again, knowing how it ends. Like, please look. There's always these shot. Bell towers are behind him everywhere he goes, which you know foreshadowing well, this whole fatalistic idea of how it's going to end up. And,
1: it, and he's and he's he's driving in a in yeah. a spiral. Yeah, everything's a spiral. Everything's him falling. Her hair straight, her is a hair. spiral.
0: Every, the camera circling him. In. The kiss and is then, a spiral. Then the
1: crazy stuff with the colors. Yeah, the,
0: yeah. Oh, reds and greens, man. The greens is sort of the eternal. Um, you know, they go visit the evergreens, and she wears green when you know it's. I read somewhere this is actually. Gross, but Hitchcock wrote somewhere that you know it's it's sort of the idea of like you know his necrophilia—he's in love with a dead woman, you know—and he uses green as that eternal, um, you know, the eternal color, and red sort of more the the mortal color. Yeah, it's pretty—it's wild, its really subvert. Hitchcock dealt with some weird stuff, but you know, no, but just the back to the directing thing, like so. Even in the opening scene, where and you you mentioned unreliable narrator, there's the there's the scene where Gavin Elster, the villain, you know, sort of brings him in and says, "I think my wife is possessed, and I need you to follow her." In that scene, they're in a shipbuilding office, and Jimmy Stewart's sitting on a chair on the lower floor. As soon as Gavin Elster, you know, they're they're chit chatting about their old college days, but as soon as he starts telling the the so quote unquote tale of of his wife's possession, he steps up onto another level of a dining room, and almost like he's up on a stage, he's putting on a performance. He walks all the way around. Says, I don't know where she is. I need you to follow her and tell me where and when, what she does during the day. And literally, the second that they he comes down and they talk about other stuff, he's back, steps back down with Jimmy Stewart, and he's off his little stage. So there's like little things like that throughout the movie, where dude Hitchcock's just working on another level. Or or this or how she her face is like in you know the green light by the window. Her face is silhouetted um, so that you only see the yeah. outline of her face and sort of. That's how he sort of starts to see that that maybe Madeline and Judy are the same person. I could talk about it forever, but
1: yeah, yeah. And we talked recently also about about Psycho and sort of the idea brilliant of movie. another brilliant movie where Hitchcock in the in the middle. You know, he, everybody talks about he kills his his main character. You know, right. thirty minutes into the movie, and then that throws the rest of the movie into a weird sort of everything is completely uncertain. It doesn't you're you're constantly on edge. And so you you basically set up your audience to 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 be completely unhinged as to what's going to happen. And likewise, you know, going back and watching some of his other movies for the longest time, I, I didn't I didn't really have an appreciation for the birds. But the more I began to mm-hmm. you know, the, seeing that several times since I, I began to see that that's, you know, that's him doing a different type of horror movie and his sort of take on it and. It ends and it doesn't seem to make sense, and I think that that's sort of, you know, his working against the world, that the world doesn't make sense and shit happens.
0: Well, he's always – it's a little that, but he's always up – I think more so. He's always up to something else, like like we just talked with Vertigo. And so – you know, in the birds, maybe the first time you watch it, you know, it, it's this horror movie. They get
1: car movie and they drive away. Right, it, it doesn't di- make any
0: sense. Exactly. So, and, and you're like, "Where's the, where's the closure?" And you know, so maybe you're throwing stuff, you know, at, the, at throwing birds at the TV. But well, he's up to something else. The birds, he's really interested in are the metaphorical symbolic birds it's it's, the, her. it's it's her and jessica tandy who's the mother-in-law and as soon as that you know because she doesn't want him to date because the, they're the, fighting right, for him the whole movie and as soon as that conflict is resolved between the characters that's when the movie ends and so it leads you to believe are the birds sort of more just a, a symb- symbolic a di- thing or a distraction a manifest yeah yeah or manifestation
1: the, of their of the, their conflict i think that's what it is
0: but i mean the, you're getting on a deeper level there and you know and to me a, a really great movie should also should also you know sense. Ha- have sort of that that thriller entertainment ride the first time which which i think in most cases you know we we've cited vertigo and the birds which have sort of those ambiguous endings but you know in most cases he, it's a pretty straightforward for yeah. ride the first way through yeah uh, like know.
1: certainly like, like with um with north by northwest oh, is yeah. most fun movie it starts it just just it's like a like a ball <laughs> going down a hill. It right. just keeps getting faster and faster, yeah. and then resolves itself in the end. I think no one was better. I
0: mean, we cited a couple examples where ambiguous endings, but I think no one was really, most most of the time. No one was better at having that straight, superficial thrill ride. He was called the master of suspense for a reason. Everyone, you know, just loved this, the movie on the surface. But no, I mean, I can't think of anyone else that was that fun to watch the first time through. But then. Twenty times later, you're finding all this other yeah, stuff. There's a,
1: yeah, that he he puts all this other stuff in. So before we wrap up, what things that have you been have you seen lately, either TV or or movies or or even musicals or, or bands or whatever, you know that that are getting your attention?
0: Ah, uh, what did we cover? What I'm trying to we do one every day, and I'm trying to remember what all we've yeah, covered. that's
1: the that's the curse of being a journalist. You write a story and yeah. then you forget it.
0: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. What, what I about enjoyed, TV, what TV what I enjoyed Love and uh Gentlemen's Guide to Love and Murder at the Kennedy Center. That was that was really fun. TV shows. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah you got TV shows. Everyone, we, you know, everyone was geeking out on Making a Murder. I binged it like everyone else. I was hooked and everything. In the end, I was a little frustrated that I feel like I didn't know yeah, which haven't way. Yeah, I watched it. Yet. But to me, that inspired me to discover The Jinx, which I love The Jinx. The Jinx is really you, great. Did you see it? Yeah. yeah. It is the HBO, and it's six episodes as opposed to ten. But, I mean, those guys, talk about lucking into a, a final, <laughs> a way to end their movie, man, oh, with the really hot mic. Bl- and, you really blew it this time. Yeah. I are to suspect you. Oh, and the burping. Oh, oh the I was bro. burping. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, I've killed them all, of course. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's. I thought that was great. That was great. Um, well, and What, what was that?
1: What was that movie? that that was uh that was an, I don't even know if it was say it was necessarily based but it was inspired by the one with um it's, it's based the space on that story.
0: Oh, oh, yeah. That the reason that Jarecki, the director Yeah. yeah. The, uh, Robert Durst reached out to Jerecki because he saw the movie. All all good things. Yeah. which is Kirsten a good movie. Dunst and Ryan Ryan Gosling, I think. Yeah, and he's quite good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. most things that are formulating my mind are, you, are some screenings I saw.
1: Yeah. Know. The um, have you seen um? Well, my favorite TV show of the last year is it was Mr. Robot. Have you seen that? I still haven't watched Mr. You Robot. You need to watch yeah. that. It cleaned it,
0: up at the gloves.
1: Well, and, and as well it should have. It, mm. it was it's pretty incredible. And I think you'd like it because the creator is shooting it like a movie. Yeah. He's like shooting like a Kubrick film. Yeah so the all the framing the way i mean it's, visually it's really stunning the performances are pretty crazy i forget the the lead actor's name but he's he's just amazing and the stories are are, are really neat and then oh, also yeah, oh, i was
0: gonna say I'll, I'll tell you something that happened recently to answer a question that was really awesome just saturday this past saturday mel brooks came to the kennedy center oh. and they showed blazing saddles and then he came out afterwards and, and did a q a with the audience and Man, the guy is getting up there, but he's—he's he's not showing energy. it. He was just walking around, paced around, almost like it was a stand-up act. Yeah, that was really cool. What there a, you go.
1: Yeah, and what a great movie. What? Oh, uh, like
0: it, hilarious. you know,
1: well, yeah, I mean, aside from the fact that you you can't show it on network television anymore. Although I probably couldn't make it today. But it, yeah, no. But it was weird because uh, I, the last time I saw it on TV, I saw it. I think it was uh, CBN. It, they played it on a Saturday night, and most of it was uncut. Surprisingly, <laughs> I was like, "Oh, oh, this is interesting. It, it's really great." And it's you know that's the sort of that R level comedy, yeah. which we do. We we have some of those now.
0: Everyone remembers that R quote unquote politically incorrect jokes and all that stuff. But to me, what made it as I was watching it again, I sort of was really digging on how postmodern it was at the end, where. You know they. Just, you know what I mean. Just they, goes over the edge. Well, Harvey Corman goes. You will be risking your lives, while I'll be risking a certain Academy Award nomination. nomination. For, and then from there on, it's you know they it they the camera pulls back and you see they're on the Warner Brothers lot and they my, spill into the musical and, and then they go watch the movie themselves yeah, at my, Chinese theater. My, my favorite rea-
1: my favorite reaction from him is him sitting in the audience and suddenly he sees them on the screen in the um. Yeah, yeah. In, in the movie theater, and so he has to has to get out of there.
0: And then they get in a limo and ride to the sunset at the end. There's all these postmodern things. Yeah, yeah, so no,
1: no, no. That's it, it was brilliant and, and certainly <laughs> ahead, of, ahead of his time. Uh, so, what'd you think of Star Wars?
0: I liked Star Wars. I did. I liked it a lot. I mean, I guess you. I, I guess if you if you want to be nitpicky, you could say it, it follows <laughs> it follows sort it's of a the same. Close. It's the same. It's basically the same formula as A New Hope, right? But I thought it was. Easily the best since Empire Strikes Back. That's not saying much, with the the three prequels, right? But I think they sort of took what worked from the seventy seven original and found a way to sort of repackage it for a new generation. I like that Ray is sort of the Ray of Hope and could be a new uh, sort of Jedi Jedi heroine for us. I'm interested to see what they're what they're in that final shot. You know, what is there is there a tie there? Is
1: she is she related to Luke? Is it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Is a spoiler alert? Great deal, great deal of uncertainty. Okay, yeah. before we go though, what's what are you looking forward to
0: coming up? Yeah. Uh, let's see. What did we just? Have I did Have you seen? Have I wasn't, you seen Deadpool I wasn't, yet? No, I actually haven't. Yeah. I uh, We. I. I. Uh, we're reviewing Zoolander two tomorrow, which I just. I'm sorry. I didn't really. I didn't really like. I. Uh, I like the first one. Uh, you know, friends and I used to laugh and geek out about it all the time. But this, I, th- I don't know. It started funny and it got kind of dumb. I actually, I'm surprised I didn't like the Cohen ones, that the Cohen brothers, oh, Hail Caesar that, that much. Yeah. I thought it was kind of all over the place. A lot of my fellow critics, Arch, Campbell, and Anne, they really loved it. But I don't know. I thought it was kind of all over the place. It introduces a lot of characters that sort of drop off by the end and there's a lot of fun musical numbers and you know there's a Busby Berkeley waterfall scene there's sort of an on the town sailor tap dance and you know a, a Dean Martin Rio Bravo style cowboy song and all that but none of those are done they're all supporting characters that do those numbers and you sort of start to lose Josh Brolin and George Clooney who are your main sort of characters sure. they they sort of fall by the wayside yeah so I was surprised I didn't like, like that one as much and Fargo is probably one of my favorite movies ever and I love the Coens so and the big
1: of the big movies coming up in the for the the summer mm-hmm. in the spring of the summer any of the blockbusters. I haven't even my my oh, switch to look ahead still, there yet still I'm in Oscar mode I still
0: gotta get out and do the Oscars well,
1: man. okay well um
0: but I mean I know Independence Day 2 is coming out and I think it just looks pretty terrible. <laughs> And no Will Smith coming back, so I'm not really looking forward to that one either. Um, Batman, Superman, eh, it could be interesting to see how they do it. I'm, I'm not sold on Ben Affleck as Batman yet. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. We probably talked about this last time. I wasn't the biggest Avengers fan. I, I have a hard time getting into the superhero movies. I know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in the minority on that. So the summer's not usually a, one of the more fun times for me. Although, I like the superheroes where it's sort of a not so much the you know, superpowers from another planet, but you know I like sort of the Batmans and the Ironmans who sort of build their own suits and, you know, make themselves into superheroes with a little bit of gadgetry and, and things of that nature. Oh, I
1: can't believe I'm 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 drawing a blank. What's the one with the the teenage boy with the green costume? Hit girl. Hit girl. No, that was the Oh well. All right. Well, I I don't want to impress you too much on this, but maybe we can have (laughs) you come back in. Yeah, yeah, let's look ahead to the schedule there, and we'll uh, and we'll we'll think of things. Thanks a lot for coming in. This has been fun, and I hope you have a good time in uh, California.
0: Thanks. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Um, it should be a lot of fun just to to check it out and um and maybe rub elbows with some of the some of the winners.
1: It'll be fun. Next time on It's All Journalism. The
0: world of publishing is changing, and and what we're seeing is that. Also, companies are effectively becoming publishers. It's not
1: sufficient anymore to just say, you know, we're, we're this and we do this. You have to show, you know, the passion behind the product and you have to explain to people what value
0: proposition you bring. And it turns out that many of those skills in explaining those things are also, you know, such as good writing, are found uh, among, among journalists.
1: In our next episode, we talk to Mark Pratt and Michael Romano of Metro Publisher about trends and concerns publishers have in general when it comes to growing online. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This week's podcast was produced by Amber Healy, Michael O'Connell, and Nicole Agrisco. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.